0: Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to use them to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan,
1: and I'm Adam Hartung.
0: We're Spark Partners. We're here every week to discuss all kinds of things as they pertain to trends, the news. We look at market trends. We look at um, how to really become a, a successful business by understanding what people are buying. And you know, at the heart of all these things are, um, you know, if you think about the heart of business, it has to do with people making decisions you know, the um, leadership making decisions. But if you think about the muscles of business, what actually makes things happen, it's the people. The people are the ones that carry out the work. The people are the ones that um, interface with the customers. The customers are people as well. So I think this whole topic, especially as we we are uh, cresting over the Labor Day weekend here, it really opens up a lot of conversation about the changing landscape of the labor market. Uh, human. We won't go into human resources per se, but at least at, the, at a grander scale, uh, things like unions, things like AI, how uh, AI is, is beginning to really create some massive change and disrupt within the labor market. So let's start the conversation, Adam, with respect to unions and what's happening with them uh, in uh, 2023 and beyond.
1: <laughs> well, as you know, the union movement peaked back in the 1960s. Uh, it, it, in terms of generating more and more people into them, it peaked in the 40s, and then uh, the, the total number or po- working population peaked sometime in the early 60s, and it's been on the decline since. Um, it, but interestingly, we now have uh, two groups on strike. We have the writers on strike, and we have the actors on strike, and we have the United Auto Workers on the edge of a strike. And so they've been polling people, and they said, do you support the, the these people being strike going on strike? Or do you support the employers? And it came out pretty consistently across all three uh, uh, surveys of, of all three striking situations that about seventy to seventy-five percent support the strikers; they support a strike, and only about uh, you know fifteen to twenty percent uh, of the people support the employers. And this is what we've been seeing: that uh, people aren't inherently rushing out to create more unions. We are seeing you know union activity at places like Starbucks, at Amazon so we've, we've definitely seen more unionization activity than we've seen for a long time we have seen people getting a more favorable attitude and again this all links back to that whole demographic thing that we just can't seem to get away from talking about in the 19 when the baby boom came along and those people started going to work in the 60s and 70s and 80s what that did was it created all this labor that was in the workforce, and so the the what people didn 't see a need for you know uh, to, to try to have the union you didn 't need worker protection. You now had an imbalance i mean I remember my whole life being at the tail end of the baby boom. There was always somebody just five or six years older than me that was going for a job, and they may only had two or three years of experience, but that was two or three years more than I had and The yeah. fact was is that we had plenty of labor you know in those days we used to think. If you went back in the 70s and 80s, people that ran corporations, their average ages were in the upper 40s, lower 50s. And now, you know, we're seeing all these people over the age of 70 that are running corporations. Two-thirds of the U.S. Senate is over 70 years old, you know? And so, what we saw was the the the, the idea of a union went down because people wanted to work. There was too many workers, there was lots and lots of labor, and with lots and lots of labor chasing not enough jobs, then the unions were something that they'd were considered unnecessary and so the unions went away but now we've got that turned upside down and we've talked about this over and again that the uh, young people there's not enough young people for all the older people and so what's happening is they're saying hey i have more control over my workforce and i have more control over what i'm doing and i'm going to take advantage of that and so we see them talking about strikes and we see and overall people are sitting back and saying yeah you know that that's probably now a good idea and it all can tie back just to the demographics right we're seeing in things, you know, like the, the union and the striking, that's, that's problematic. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But at the same time, you know, there's over 100 million square foot of, of office space sitting around empty these days. And that's because people are saying, hey, I'm not willing. Dad, you might have been ready to go get up every morning and you know do that hour and a half commute and go to the office and come back and go through that hassle every day. I don't see a need for it. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. Certainly not willing to do it every single day. And so we have all this office space is going empty, right? So there's a lot of repercussions that get back to this demographics. And that also includes mm-hmm. how people think about labor. You know, we had well, Labor Day was created as a day to rejoice the working person <coughs> who had to get up and go in and work in a factory every day or work in a in a, in a job using their hands and they wanted to, get, you know, give them a day off. Uh, now it's just an institutionalized holiday. And I'm not sure anybody in the age of 30 really realizes what it took to get a Labor Day created. No. But. It, it, you know, it, it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue that the labor force is changing, you know, and the, the trends have changed. And, you know, once again, back to the idea of are people going to go back to work in an office? <laughs> My sense is that the hybrid model is probably here for the next decade. I don't know. I don't know which companies are going to go to 100 percent remote. It's uh, certainly the idea of 100 percent remote workforce took a back backseat uh, in the last two weeks when Zoom, the company Zoom. Right. announced that it was going to require its workers to come to the office periodically. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So that, I think, set back people's notions of, could it be 100% remote? Uh, So I think we're now pretty well tied to hybrid. But Some of these other corporations where you have these older people running them are trying to get everybody in the office every day. And the one I pick on consistently is Jamie Dimon running J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in America, saying he wants everybody back in the office. Well, Jamie Dimon is 67 or 68 years old and he's got grandkids, right? And so the idea is, do you really know how people operate in the real Mm -hmm. world, Jamie, when you've got seven houses and you've got... Private planes to take you wherever you want to go and helicopters to move you around and, you know, and you never drive a car because you've got a fleet of drivers that take you places. Do you know what's going on in the world? And I think we have a problem where a lot of the senior people that really make decisions in big organizations aren't that well in touch. On the other side of that is an idea of trust. And, you know, like I said, when there was not enough jobs and we were working, trying to find a job all the time, then we didn't really question whether or not we should trust our leaders. But but a lot of stuff has happened in the last 15 years that have caused people under the age of 50 to wonder if they can trust these leaders. Right. Well, look,
0: look what happened uh, over the past couple weeks weeks, the last 15 days with Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Right. He froze. He froze for, you know, what, 45 seconds, a minute. And then they had to escort him off stage. I mean that's just a plain example of the leadership is maybe too old to be doing a lot of things that they're doing now.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a very real issue. And, and again, I want to talk about, you know, how much can I trust these people? Well, polarization in politics has got some people wondering, are you there because you're doing what you think's best, best? Are you there because you're just trying to mimic something, you know? And when watching this young guy, Ramaswamy, on a recent debate, presidential debate, where he effectively, you know, just spouted a lot of Trumpian type statements. Made people wonder, you know, is this guy speaking for his generation and what he thinks is good for the country? Or is he just trying to get the vice presidential nod on a Trump ticket? Um, and, and and I want to take that one step further, which is, I think, what's happening now in the Supreme Court. Um for my whole life, anyway, we thought if you were on the Supreme Court, you were one of the most impeccable people in the country. Uh, that it was a great honor to be on the Supreme Court. And that, you know, that those people really were the role model that you pay attention to. They were appointed mm-hmm. to that position for life, didn't have to worry about politics and have to think about politics. They could sit there and try to think about how do we try to have a great American society. And now we've come out this year uh, with just so many. Uh, <laughs> Finding out so much about Clarence Thomas and how for 30 years he's been accepting millions and millions of dollars in gifts. And he's been flown around in private jets. He's been taken on private yachts. um, Literally, millions and millions of dollars have been spent on him by his good friends. And so he says, Well, it's nothing but a friend. Well, that's problematic because I could say the same thing and say, Hey, you're my good friend because you fly me around the country. So I listen to you. And then somebody will say, Well, no, but he doesn't, ha- the people who are flying him around, like Harlan Crow, don't have anything in front of the Supreme Court. Well, they may not have anything in front of the Supreme Court to speak of. Sorry about that. We may not have anything in front of the Supreme Court to speak of. But they do have friends, and the friends have companies, and they have businesses. So the side hustle talk that's happening on these private jets, on these yachts, that side hustle talk is all affecting the decision-making that Clarence Thomas has. And the same with with Justice Alito, where he's uh, accepting these very, very large gifts. When you're paying for somebody's kid to go to school, or you're paying for somebody to have two weeks off in this very expensive location, you're influencing them. And what young people are seeing is that, hey, a lot of people of the older generation— are bought and paid for, you know, they're not doing what's good for their business. They're not doing what's good for the country. They're doing what's good for them. And certainly in the case of Clarence Thomas, his accepting of those gifts, his unwillingness to say, wait a minute, stand back. I got, you know, my position, I have to be, Above, above everything here. I can't accept that gift. You see people, judges, we're reading all kinds of articles of judges at much lower level have had to do that. I read one recently about a judge who was talking to an attorney and uh, happened to just conversation was talking about baseball and the attorney said, hey, you know what? I have season tickets and I can't go to the ball game tomorrow night. Would you like to have my season ticket, you know, go to the game? Here's a couple, free tickets that can go. And the judge initially said, sure, why not? Because we're friends. And then he got to thinking, wait a minute, I don't know what, groups this guy belongs to i don't know what associations Mm -hmm. he may have i don't know what partners he may work with and he said you know honestly i'd love to accept your tickets but but i really i can't and that's what we expect from a judge right and so when people watch and they see this this clarence thomas shenanigans going on then these young people start saying wait a minute why should i listen to a jamie diamond who's got all those big fancy planes and he's got multiple places to live and you know he's got so much money he can't burn it all why should I listen to him? Does he know what we uh, go through? Does he know what our expectations are as young people? Does he know how people buy and, and behave and how they work anymore? And I think there's a yeah. lot of trust that has been lost by the people that are under the age of 40 in the leadership. And and I think this Labor Day, people should spend some time thinking about that. If you're the leader of an organization and you're over the age of 60, how are you leading? Are you leading based upon the way the world was when you were 35? Or are you leading the way the world needs to be led today? Are you thinking about the world of work, the way that you work? Or are you thinking about what how it can be today and how it can be in the future? And you mm-hmm. know, are you doing what's really good and the best interest of your company? Or are you running on that sort of autopilot based on your biases? Yeah, it's very much question for where we are today.
0: Yeah, it's very disappointing. It's very disappointing. I actually bumped into an a video a few days ago of uh, john mccain at the concession speech when he uh, conceded the the presidential um, role to obama and uh you know whether you like the his politics or not i think that everyone will agree that he was an honorable man he stood up and he said look what i'm going to paraphrase because he was obviously very eloquent with his uh conversation but he essentially said look uh, you entrusted <clears throat> you entrusted me with your vote He was talking to the Republican National Convention. You entrusted me with your vote. But now I ask you, I implore upon you to consider the differences between me and my opponent are minute compared to the grand mission of what we're trying to do with this country. And I I ask you not only to give your full support to him, but also to think about what it means to be an American. So he kind of brought it down to a, a new level of trust, as you mentioned. And not, a, you know, it's, of course we're all people that are making these decisions, but we have a common bigger goal that we should keep our eye on. And just like you said, as far as a leader in their sixties and above, or even I would say any leader, they've got to re- realize that their biases are, are holding them down in making decisions that are potentially for the betterment of their company, as opposed to the betterment of their wallet.
1: Right. Right. I mean, to be quite honest, there's a lot of people that are boomers, people between the ages of 60 and 75, that probably should walk away from a leadership position and still stay in their company, but in a more operational role. Like you know, if you know the business, if you know how it works, maybe you should become somebody that's running a warehouse, or somebody that's doing more truck fleet management, or perhaps running a process in the company, like R and D, or running a you know working in the marketing department around sales. And you know, you may not have as good a touch with some of the uh, internet uh, tools and some of the implications of that, but you could learn it again, and you could bring in what you've known about customers and known about trying to create marketplaces. But turn over leadership, the true leadership, the top, to people who are younger, right? And then give them a chance and an opportunity to lead into the future with the things that they know and be supportive. Um, There was a movie made a few years ago called The Apprentice and the lead actor in it, you know, it's this guy who had had a big job and he ends up going to work in a company for free, becomes an apprentice. And he sits beside a couple of guys that are in their 20s. uh, And it's basically, you know, he, he didn't want to quit working, but he couldn't get a job. And so he took this job for free in a company. And, uh, and over time in the movie, of course, naturally, you know, his insights become important and people learn to have an appreciation for him. But that's what we need to start moving towards. You know, I've had certainly some situations. I had a conversation this week. One of my colleagues was asking me about some uh, work project. And I tend to be honest with him, I said, look, you know, I've had a real problem with ageism in the last couple of years. I've gone for some projects and uh, th- I knew that I had the best proposal. I knew I had the most experience. But at the end of the day, it was given to somebody else because the two people making the decision were under the age of 50. And they simply said, look, we want somebody more close to our age rather than another one of those old guys. And I kind of felt bad about that. I was kind of, you know, I want one of those people that have been making some of the bad decisions. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, the, 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 I think we need each other is what I'm trying to get to. The culmination of this is you need the workers, but we can't assume that just because we're older, we get to be the boss. And I think that's another thing that's changing in the labor market is that we have to be willing. I had a conversation A week ago with somebody, I said, hey, I said, uh, you know, I could go out and do consulting, regular consulting, like somebody maybe been in the business for five or six years. I certainly have all those skills. I certainly have communication skills and how to use PowerPoint, Excel, Word, all the things that go with that. I said, but you wouldn't put me in an office where I was working beside somebody who was 35, let's say, and we're both working as consultants. You wouldn't accept that as an opportunity, even if I would accept it. So if I'm saying, hey, I'm ready to go work, I'm, I'd be happy to have an opportunity to just get down and work as a consultant every day, not be in a leadership position trying to sell clients or any of that, would that be acceptable? And, and was struck me how uh, how he was affected by that, that his position was kind of like he couldn't imagine me working in his organization as a consultant. Even though he he said his number one problem was getting quality people, getting talented people, folks that could actually do Mm -hmm. the work. There weren't enough of them. I said, well, hey, there's some of us out there who are retirement age who don't want to retire, who want to work. Why wouldn't you put us to work? So that dynamic to me is something that we've really got to start to think about. I think that some of the people that are older got to think about getting their butts out of there. I'm talking about the US Senate, the Congress, You know, there's, we're seeing some of these people that are not able to show up for work and work effectively. And I'm not just on Mitch McConnell, on the other side of the coin, you got uh, Feinstein from California, who clearly isn't up for doing the job, right? So we need, we need these leaders to start admitting that it's time for them to walk away. I mean, literally walk away. Um, we're probably going to have a terrible election. It looks like we're shaping up to have an election where the two candidates are the least desirable candidates, you know, because of both of them are well over 70 years old. And, and, and it's disappointing. It's disappointing that the people that are in those leaderships, just well, I don't understand why a, a Joe Biden, at two years before an election, wouldn't scan around his own party to try to find somebody who's very, very electable yeah. and say, "Look, you know, let, let me get, let me throw my support behind you, and then you know, I'll work with your administration after you get elected." Um, th- that would be so much more effective as a politician, and wouldn't put people in jeopardy of him dying in office and all those other kinds of things that go on. But yet he says, "I want to stay here and finish the job." It's like, dude, you're eighty years old. Why do you need another four year job, right? So he needs to be walking away and then the younger people need to be saying, hey, I want to take this advice and I'll have these people work for me. I'll turn it upside down. You know, I I don't have a problem if I'm 40, 45, 50 with somebody who's 62, 63, 68, 71 working for me.
0: Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, good old fashioned ego and pride. Um, Some (laughs) of these people are in a position where they feel as though if they step away, that they're going to be less of themselves. And I go back to some of my own personal experience and the, the high flying, high growth, highly successful companies that I've worked in or for either directly or as a consultant, one of the common threads of the leadership is there's a certain level of humility by the leader, the top leader in particular, because it goes back to what we talk about all the time, adaptability, uh, you know, scenario planning and going in the direction where you don't personally want to go, but where you see that the market shifting, those are the smart leaders those are the ones that make the decisions that are bigger than themselves and uh, ultimately make uh, uh, more success for themselves in the in the long run
1: yeah and, and you know and i think this opens the door also for we're talking about labor day and labor and work is the future of artificial intelligence and um i think that a lot of the older leaders don't know what artificial intelligence is don't know what it's about and they're afraid of it and they're trying to say oh my gosh it could ruin the world Let's not have it. And then we have some other people, younger people who are saying, I see the tool, but I'm not quite sure how to apply it. And so that gap once again reappears in that the older person, if they would get the, their head out of their tail end, and they would actually look at what this technology is and how to use it, could probably say, you know, this might be good for solving this problem. And then the people who are closer to the technology who are able to program and able to make it happen, could work with them towards making it happen, right? So that you could have best of both worlds. And then the older people could learn how the technology works, right? And the younger people are learning the, the decision-making process from the older person. So that those two could work together in a very effective way. Um, you sent me an article, Manny, and, and I, I just, I have to, it, it, I was so impressed. A woman named Justine Bateman, this is quoting from ABC News now, I, I, I don't want to get accused of making this up, but she was she's uh, talking to the people at SAG-AFTRA about the strike and, and what AI will do. And she says, in AI, there's no soul, there's no spirit. It doesn't tap into anything except the past, and it regurgitates the past. Not even a new way of looking at the past. It's just slicing, dicing, and rearranging. If we start to write television shows... Based upon AI, you're just going to get a regurgitation of the past. I'm like, that is so brilliant. It is so true. And the people that are afraid of AI are sitting there not realizing that AI isn't creative in and of itself. It's not making something new. It is regurgitating. And so that's where us humans should start saying this is a tool that we can build on because we have those creative ideas. And, you know, let me quote her again. If you turn a blender on without anything in it, it just spins. That's generative AI. You've got to put something into it. So you have to feed it something. And what you feed it determines the outcome. And then I love this blender analogy. Because if you turn on the blender and you just throw stuff in, are you going to have something worth eating? No, of course not, right? right? I mean, let's throw in some beets and a little ketchup and maybe a hunk of meat. And well, you got garbage, right? right. Garbage in, garbage out, even if it is AI. And so the point here is that these generative models, and you go back to look at NVIDIA and what they do, a lot depends on being smart about how you program it, smart about how you use the AI. And so that is where having some experience brought to the technology and technology brought to the experience becomes really, really powerful. And, and I think it's going to be, you know, I, I, again, I, this Justine Bateman person, I think. You know who she is, by the way? Actually, I don't. <laughs> okay, so
0: back in uh, the 80s, there was a, uh, a show called Family Ties.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah.
0: With, yeah. Uh, with Michael J. Fox and so forth.
1: Yeah. She was
0: she was his sister in the show.
1: Oh, okay. So but she's. She had black hair, actor, the actors have black hair, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so her, just one of her other things, and I, I respect her for a, a couple of different reasons. One of the other things that she says is she's 100% against any body altering, you know, uh, Botox or uh, surgeries or whatever. She's not judging it. She's not saying if you do it, it's bad. She's saying that for herself, that she wants to grow old gracefully because that's just the process. That's just the way things go. So um, this is a very, I mean, that article really opened my eyes to, like you said, some Some interesting uh, analogies of how AI is just a tool. It's just another tool.
1: You know, I I knew this, but I think the way she expressed it is what's so powerful. That The idea, it's a blender. What you put in makes the difference. You know, Um, I guess I could imagine cooks a long time ago when they used to have to, you know, you you cut everything up and then you put it into those old-fashioned ricers and you had to sit there and push it through the ricer to try to get it to a blendable product, you know, now you just throw it in the blender and goes, you wouldn't go back and and use the manual tool when you have a power tool that does it does a really good job. And so her ability to equate AI to the blender, I think was just a stroke of genius. And I think people need to take that back to their jobs now here in twenty twenty three. They just start saying, wait a minute, it's a tool. The tool can't be any better than the operator. And I need to learn how to be a better operator. How might I do that? I might do it myself from the basics, but another way is to meet some people who already know how to use the tool and spend some time around them. You know, if you think about if you've ever learned to use a power tool or think about tools you've learned in your life, a lot of times there was somebody who was an expert and you went to the expert and they demonstrated the tool, right? Uh, Look like at Home Depot demonstrations going, right? Or you turned on the, 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 uh, the uh, PBS station. Right. And you watched old Yankee workshop and <laughs> learn how to use a router. Right. And so age doesn't matter at that point. There are people that have expertise on the tool and then everybody can learn from it. And that's what we need to see going forward. I think people that are working in the workforce today need to understand how their jobs can change. I, you know, I'm not negotiating for sag here, but it's just quite clear that these tools are important. Um, when I read that, I was reminded of a Tom Hanks movie named Polar Express. Uh, that was made i think a couple of decades ago maybe a little longer but if you, people don't recall this movie it's it's an it looks like an animated movie when you watch the movie but what they did was they had the actors put on suits, and the suits had a lot of electronic dots on it, and then the actors would move, and that created the characters. So when they wanted to show the character walking across the top of a train, Tom Hanks had on this suit, and they put a fan on, and he leaned forward and he walked. Then what they got was an animation that was very, very lifelike looking, okay? And uh, so that movie, I happened to enjoy the movie, Polar Express, and, and a lot of people enjoyed that movie. That was artificial, what you had was you had the combination of an actor and his ingenious, you know, his genius about how to portray a, a story and how to act. Then you had, instead of somebody, him just using his mouth, you had him acting and then we turned it into animation. So then behind the animation, you could right. have the scenes of sleet and snow and all this stuff going on. That, that, that in a way was an artificial intelligence made movie 25 years ago, whenever that happened. Would we want to stop that? No, we don't want to stop that. When you no. can use these technologies to make it a piece of entertainment, you should don't try to block it. But but at the same time, recognize the impact. If you've been making a living as a copy editor, rereading copy that somebody else did, there's going to be a lot less demand for that because mm-hmm. computers can do that for you. Right. So if what we're doing is checking the language, mm, that's a tough job to say you're going to be around for very long. But if you're actually part of the creative process, Oh, then that's different.
0: Yeah, And if you think about the, another piece of Hollywood that, that in my opinion, really embraced technology, it's on the, the, the graphic side, the, uh, the props people, right? I mean, there's a, uh, this whole movement that happened what 40, 50, 60 years ago of using artificial, um, animation and computer generated animation, animation to tell a better story. Imagine these stories where you're blowing up a building. Well, yeah, you can do a small model and all that, but it's going to look really fake. Or you can program a computer to do, to blow up that building, and it'll look real. Um, it's interesting that my my sister in law is is in the um, in the Hollywood uh, domain, and uh, she actually did a um, a uh, documentary portraying those old school science fiction guys that would gals that would go. You know the the masks and all the props and all that and it's a it's a it's more of a of a throwback but obviously you can tell a better story by using these computer uh generated images
1: uh, it you know imaging itself i that was i got my start in imaging back at dupont years ago well, not my first start but anyway was we did a lot of work and we created a lot of technology around how to and how to how to do things on a screen right the now or every day and this was pre-pixar for, and uh, when we sold technology to Pixar. Anyway, the net, the net of it is that graphics didn't kill the movies, right? Automating graphics. So we used to be guys at Disney that drew animations one cell at a time, right? And I think you can still go buy these single cells from places and people hang them up as artwork. But then we improved that, we figured out how to do it with a computer, right? Did that reduce... The, the the entertainment no, it, but it made it allowed it possible to have a lot more animated entertainment and a lot higher quality animated ent- entertainment. Things like in uh, you know Star Wars, where you got people looking like they're flying through space, and you look like they're having shooting rockets through space. All that's digitally. You couldn't done it without that technology. And I think that's what we need to start to understand is that AI is going to have that kind of impact on entertainment and everything else that we do. Um, and, and don't be fearful of it for that reason. If you don't, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you should be fearful of it because it could have a lot of, you know, a lot of good uses. I think there are places today that, it, you know, it's not a, not a good use. Like, for example, people are talking about trying to do healthcare diagnostics with AI. Well, that's extraordinarily risky because there's so many thousands of things that a physician looks at that's in the back of his mind. Like, they just note that the, when, the customer, when the patient walked in the door, they leaned to the right. And then didn't say they leaned to the right, but he noticed a weakness in the right side, which then caused him to have an indication for blah, 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 right? That's, yeah. So diagnostics is still something that re- involves not only what you can answer on a series of questions, but things that are observable and that experts observe, you know, physicians, physicians, assistants, nurses, all these people are They're collecting data that it will be so hard to collect all that data and feed it into an AI model. So the AI model is likely to make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, it's, and also at the same time, all the data that goes into understanding, for example, drugs and biodrugs, how they work. The mechanism of action in these things is very very complicated and if you try to turn that into an ai model we just don't have the basics of of how that all works in a way that 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 ai could sort that out so i think it's extraordinarily dangerous to apply it into those kinds of healthcare applications today on the other hand doing simple things like monitoring through something like a watch my heart activity during the day to then send me an alert to say your heart's beating way too fast adam that's a pretty good application right? right because otherwise i might like likely wouldn't know so artificial intelligence will find its way into everything but it's going to start off solving the problems today that are the problems for which the data sets make sense like i said the problems where you know you can put it in a blender we need the blender to, to chuck it up and get us an answer well there's there's there plenty of those questions out there plenty of those problems that we should work on and i don't think people when they look on labor day they shouldn't say artificial intelligence is the technology that's going to kill labor i don't believe that to be true at all it'll open the door for more products more services more ways to mm-hmm. service the customer and it'll just change work
0: very well said adam and with that we'll we'll uh, conclude this podcast i think it's a good example of what's happening in the labor market, and uh, we invite you to to write to Adam and I. We're always interested in hearing your thoughts. Manny at sparkpartners.com, adam at sparkpartners.com. Lots of exciting things happening on our side, and we look forward to talking to you next week.
1: Thanks, Manny. Cheers.